Hello, Curly. Here we are again. Maybe for the last time. But if you want to kill him, at least give him a chance. A chance to defend himself. At the third stroke of the bell, you turn and shoot. following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> they must be destroyed on sight! This is They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 162, and I'm your host, Lee. You only betray a Mexican woman once, Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Never question a man who pays well, Harper. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I am on. I am hairy-chested like Jack Palance, mm-hmm. and also nude like Jack Palance in the film. So, <laughs> but, but my ass doesn't look that good, so unfortunately, unfortunately for the audience, they don't get to see it. Thing. <laughs> Jack Pounds, million dollar body, ten dollar face. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of wonder what Curly's gold looks like these days. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be doing the Mercenary from 1968. Uh, but before we get into that, we do have a couple comments here. Going back to last week, where Jeff Williams's recommendation of the week for Macon County Line. Uh, he said we'd never look at Jethro Bodine the same way again. Uh, Darren Wilson from uh, Psychosomatic Cast uh, was helpful enough to say uh, Jethro Bodine is Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, the classic Jethro. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I for think... some reason my brain went Jethro Tull. And, you know, I was... <laughs> so you're picturing someone playing a flute. Yeah, yeah, playing a flute and winning <laughs> yeah. uh, heavy metal awards. Yeah, that was yeah. that was my that was my thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally blanked on it. It's like I've I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode of Beverly Hillbillies. So it's one of those. It was just because I used to watch a lot of like Nick Knight when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So it's it was always kind of available to me in some, but I never really watched it. If that makes sense, it was just kind of like always like, oh, I'm just familiar with the existence of this thing, but yeah. I don't think I was ever really a fan of it. So you know, there he goes. Yeah. And speaking of Jeff Williams, he gives us our recommendation for this week. 
and it is uh, Monsieur Hire. Following um, the mysterious murder of a young girl in a French suburb, the local misanthrope Monsieur Hire is suspected by both neighbors and police. Could the sexy woman next door be the next victim? A fantastic reworking of the Julien Duvivier classic Panique. Uh, Patrice Leconte's version completely changes the tone, theme, and structure of the original by making the story into a character-driven noir love triangle instead of a treaty on anti-Semitism. Michael Blank is somehow both repellent and sympathetic in the title role, and Sandrine Bonnier is stunning and unpredictable as his beautiful neighbor. Strongly recommended going into this film fully blind and completely ignorant of Panique's plot as well for maximum enjoyment. Well, that won't be difficult for me because I've never seen Panique, so uh, yeah. I don't watch anything French, so you know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, it does. Uh, no, I mentioned it in both films now, but I'm going to deliberately not look anything up about it. And uh, yeah, no, we should. You know, we should start doing these. I mean, I know we've done some of them, but you know, I feel like every time I, l- I listen to one, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. Gee, yeah. this guy sounds like someone who might, you know, should do a podcast about these sorts of things. Really, yeah. And, you know, maybe would be better than the one you're listening to now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. It's like, well, why why are we doing your job for you, Jeff? You should yeah, be yeah. fucking talking about this shit. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, thank you very much, Jeff. I always love to uh, see your recommendations. And we should get into some, like, French crime films and stuff at some point in the future. Like I've got Le Samurai sitting on my shelf, just burning a hole in my shelf, basically. Like, Oh know. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm amazed it took us this long to get to this one because, you know, this has been on the list for, I mean, like two years now. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shows you how long it takes for us to get to the ones we really, really want to do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, we can move on to what we've watched in the last little while. I've got nothing to talk about, but I know Daniel has something. So uh, take it away. Yeah, no, I saw a, um, probably going to be the biggest film of all time uh, at the end. Uh, we're not going to talk about that one. Um, <laughs> for well, we have another sideline podcast where we discuss these, but I did see that I did see the big movie this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did uh, watch something uh, on on Netflix. I watched uh, the Free State of Jones. Um, oh, um, the uh, 2016 Matthew Modine, or not Matthew, Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. Yeah. Matthew Modine would have been a very different choice oh, yeah. for that role. Interesting choice, but no, a Matthew McConaughey film about this uh, a real-life deserter from the uh, Civil War, from the Confederate side of the Civil War, who uh, ends up kind of uh, going into rebellion against the Confederacy. Um, this is a film uh, directed by Gary Ross. Um, Gary Ross is probably best known for directing The Hunger Games, but he was also, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote, he wrote and directed Pleasantville and uh, Seabiscuit and uh, he wrote big and um, right. Uh, Dave. So, you know, he's kind of, he's been around for a while. Uh, this was, uh, you know, it's funny, like it made me want to uh, kind of learn more about the real history and even reading the Wikipedia page for the real history definitely kind of gave me a sense of, wow, there's so much that's just not in this film. Like this film is kind mm-hmm. of the, uh, Hagiographic version of this. This does feel like the, you know, the kind of the, the papered over the, uh, the kind of the version that the uh, family of this guy kind of kind of wants spread. The real story seems a he seems even more heroic in the in the real thing in the real history, but also like much more sort of morally ambiguous, and also not nearly as much of a white savior. That's kind of the big thing that kind of this film is kind of famous for. Is oh yeah, it's this uh, like mixed race regiment of people who built an anarchist collective in like 1863, and uh, it turns out to be you know it's all the uh, pretty white 
boy. All the he did the he did all the things that are that are not you know and uh, you know African American characters kind of like fade into the background after a while and they just kind of come back in there. Anyway, it's a it's a pretty good film. I like it. I, I liked the film as a film, but um, I was kind of left uh, ultimately um, empty by it. You know, it really mm-hmm. it really didn't didn't kind of get it the, the thing that I wish it did, and uh, it did make me uh, make me kind of decide I am going to have to like read one of the one of the books about this guy at some point because uh, I think that getting more of the real history I think would be more interesting and I'm interested to see whether the structure of the film is kind of taken from a couple of the books that were kind of written that it's sort of based on or if it is kind of more just kind of Hollywood horseshit because apparently a bunch of the incidents actually were in the books but there's a lot of question about whether they actually happened or whether it was just kind of a lie anyway so yeah no the free state of jones is on netflix and it's uh probably worth it. i mean if you if you like that sort of thing it was i mean it was not unentertaining you know it was it was definitely worth a watch so check it out yeah i, I had mulled that one over a couple times so never, never if, really... if if nothing else just the the it shows the reality of the civil war the american civil war probably about as well as anything ever will in the sense that the American Civil War was basically, you know, a bunch of kids walking, you know, and being slaughtered by, you know, rifle fire. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Most people who fought in that war never fired a shot, you know, right. like 600,000 people died in that war. And, it, and it's, you know, completely, um, if you think about like the kind of the opening sequence of uh, Saving Private Ryan, like that mm-hmm. level of gore, the, the first like 15, 20 minutes of this film kind of events that i mean it, it's very nearly that brutal but um without the uh patina of uh sentimentality that spielberg kind of gives to everything y- you understand exactly why this guy you know just decides to fucking leave <laughs> yeah yeah you would think a lot of people would and there were i mean that's why i mean mm-hmm. they had to i mean that's why you know they, it's punishable by death you know and i think that the um the sort of the mainstream i mean even the sort of revisionist histories even the you know non-lost cause histories of the civil war sometimes lean into a little bit of the the kind of the valor of battle and that sort of thing yeah. and uh you know i'm not you know any anybody who fights for fights on the good fight of a of a, of a war i'm not gonna you know kind of counter signal that it, it's a meat grinder this was a meat grinder yeah. and uh, the degree to which we sort of forget that or that we valorize that is is kind of disgusting but you know that's another another topic for another time that yeah. certainly isn't something that comes up in this film yeah. no not at all it doesn't touch on any of that sort of thing. no no not, not at all not at all <laughs> But yeah, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll play some music and uh, some podcast promos, and we'll come back with a mercenary. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 <laughs> and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 bark. that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com and doomedmoviethon.com. Hello, hello. This is the Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> 
how peaceful it looks. Most effective, your majesty. We'll destroy this earth. Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the visual screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hell Ming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcasts. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Hell Ming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs>
All right, The Mercenary from 1968. a professional gun revenge of a gunfighter and professional gun hmm. directed by sergio corbucci uh, written by franco salinas giorgio orlorio uh, luciano vincenzoni sergio spina adrino bolzoni and Sergio Cabucci. And we'll get into that in the trivia why there's so many fucking writers on this one, by the way. You, you would think that many writers, the quality is going to be really bad. But uh, <laughs> turns out not to be. No, not uh, so much. Yeah, no. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, starring Franco Nero, probably at this time, arguably the most beautiful man in the world, as uh, Sergei Polak Kolowski. Uh, Tony Musante in his only Spaghetti Western as uh, Paco Roman. And uh, you might know him best from The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He was hmm. uh, in that film. Jack Palance uh, as Riculio, or better known as Curly in the English versions of this. Giovanna Raleigh as Columba. Eduardo Fargiardo as Alfonso Garcia, and he was the bad guy in Django. And we also talked about him in Oasis of the Zombies, of all things. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> he had a long, varied career. Uh, and in this one, he's kind of looking like uh, Sh- Sean Connery a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Franco Gio Corbini as Papote, Alvaro de Luna as Roman, Raf Baldassar as Matteo, Joe Camal as Sebastian, <clears throat> and Franco Rissell as Studs. Synopsis for this I pulled from IMDb from someone called Captain Quirk. A greedy Polish mercenary aids a mine worker and peasant girl as they lead a revolution against the oppressive Mexican government and are pursued by an American rival. Yeah, that's kind of it. But, you know, good try. There's a lot more nuance in this one, I think, than just that. Right, uh, yeah. But, but, you know, like, uh, you know, Citizen Kane, you know, it's a story of a a kid who, who gets rich and then loses some money. You know, <laughs> I, I won't mention before we get into this. So, actually, 
we'll just get this out of the way, actually. The reason there were so many writers on this. Uh, so originally, before Ser- Sergio Cabrucci came into this project, Gilio Pontecorvo, who did Battle of Algiers, was slated mm-hmm. to be the director for this one. Yeah. And uh, Salinas, who also <clears throat> wrote on that film, was, was writing for this. And they did a story that was based on a much darker... I think it was a play or something along those lines about an American mercenary and a black revolutionary who get together. And apparently that one ends super fucking dark. Like it's much more of a, much more of a social political statement than uh, even this film does, but they changed it. They didn't want to go that dark. Corbucci came in and rewrote a bunch of stuff on this and made it more of a straight up action film. And they brought Nero in. So that's kind of where we are with this. And, I'll throw over to you, Daniel. Is this your first time watching, and what's your sort of initial thoughts on it? This was I've been I've been hanging on to this one. I've been I've been kind of uh, not watching this until we were going to do another podcast because I knew it was going to be one I was going to love, and it is a film that I deeply love and will be watching uh, on you know many occasions, most likely. Mm. The uh, I, I was joking about the uh, I'm not sure if it's going to end up in the edit, but I was joking about the the the, the theme song. Um, mm-hmm. Laurina is possibly my favorite piece of like music movie music ever. So uh, I listen to it all the time. I could like this movie would would kind of be a, a sentimental favorite just based on the use of the theme. Besides that, my God, this is this is a this is a really phenomenal film. One of the best spaghetti westerns, I think. Carbucci, kind of think of him as being this super dark, deeply political guy. Um, this seems to be him combining that with a little bit more of a kind of a thrill seeking uh, kind of kind of mainstream appeal kind of thing. And I think it mostly works really well. It kind of being both things about being this dark, complicated uh, rumination on the nature of revolution and kind of a fun buddy movie, you yeah. know, with the, with a little bit of a sex comedy aspect to it. It's, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of all three things at once. Um, I found it interesting. I was looking at this uh, Giovanna Reali, um, who plays Columba, who steals the last half of the movie. Mm-hmm. She was uh, kind of known for being in Italian sex comedies in the 50s. So I think we need to definitely put some of those on our list because yeah. uh, I yeah. was watching this. My wife was sitting next to me and uh, kind of she, she shows up and my wife on her phone kind of glancing over occasionally and literally looked over the second she's on screen and goes, oh, who is she? Mm-hmm. It was definitely kind of one of those moments, um, you know. Equal to Claudia Cardinal, in my opinion. Yeah, she's got that same level of striking presence, I think, yeah. Franco Nero, amazing. I, you were kind of talking about how good-looking he is. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was made the same year as this film. And uh, Franco Nero kind of combines all of the uh, boyish good looks of Robert Redford in that film mm-hmm. with the uh, piercing, striking blue eyes and strength presence of Paul Newman. So it's kind of like best of both worlds. But Italian, so, you know, even better <laughs> than that. Watching this film, this is where I've kind of felt after so many rewatches of this. He's equal or even better than Clint Eastwood ever was in any of his spaghetti westerns. He's just that fucking good. He is. I mean, it's it's sort of like Eastwood. I mean, I feel like Eastwood, I don't want to say like kind of coasted on the fact that Leone was as good as he was, but mm. you know, there is there is a sense in which, you know, like the Man with No Name trilogy is not great because of Eastwood. It's great because of Leone, and Eastwood is just 
good in it. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's it's not he's not bad. I'm not, but like he's certainly not the thing that I kind of go back to. It's Leone kind of made those films what they were. Yeah, and I think that I would be hard. I would be hard pressed to kind of say like Nero could have done that as well as Eastwood did, because I think Nero brings a different kind of presence to the film. Right. At the same time, I think the fact that you know Eastwood went on to have a four decade career as one of like you know highly lauded Hollywood film stars and directors, mm-hmm. and Franco Nero kind of went on to do a whole bunch of low budget spaghetti westerns and such. Uh, you know, there, there's a dichotomy there that that's really unearned. I mean, I think Fra- Franco Nero is is really fucking good. Everything I've seen him in, he's been he's been pretty phenomenal. I mean, not least of which, of course, is Django. But this is this is him. I think uh, this is probably the best I've seen him. Quite honestly, and his award winning uh, turn in Die Hard too. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, oh man, I did not remember he's in it. I kind of forget that Die Hard Two exists. Uh, you know, my, the, opinion uh, is, my opinion, my opinion, there's only one Die Hard. You know, that's, that's yeah, yeah. But he's mind. he's the uh, vaguely Latino general or whatever that the ex military guy who's the main at- antagonist in Die Hard Two is trying to like save or whatever. Like he's being transported or some. Oh, shit. He's, so he's like he's like the the MacGuffin in the film. Okay, yeah, so, he is. All right, yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, that, there's a reason I can't remember him. Anyway, no, I really I love the film. Jet Palance, he gives a good bad guy. Definitely both that kind of theatrical, you know, big kind of movie star bad guy. Um, but also like, uh, you know, not, not so over the top that he's not sort of believable in that same way. I mean, the whole film kind of rests on being both this kind of sociopolitical drama story of this weird revolutionary and his, you know, like paid helper, you know, who's really running the show. And again, that bigger, more Hollywood production. And I think Palance is, is he exists right on that knife edge of being like too far one way or the other. But I think he, he it's it's a tricky role and he, I think he pulls it off really well. Overall I'm I'm really impressed with the execution here. Yeah, I love pretty much everything about this film. Um, I mean right from the start where you got the the sort of sepia toned uh pictures of like the nineteen hundreds Mexico or whatever mm-hmm. where it gives you it sort of sets the stage like here's here's the Mexican Revolution, you know, here here's the stuff that's leading up to it. You see all these like imperial powers and stuff harming the government and, yeah. uh, and impressing the citizens. Then Which it, again it's... connects to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, it's mm-hmm. weird that these two movies are made like right at the same moment. You know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, continue. And of course, this is a uh, quote unquote Zapata spaghetti western. So it, it does deal with Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why you see like a guy like Corbucci uh, get into this because. Corbucci, like a lot of his contemporaries uh, in Italian directing at the time, were all sort of like Marxists. Yep. And <laughs> only a communist could have made this film. That's well, the, you know. <laughs> well, and here, here's the thing: like this is made at a time where you're getting the uh, student, the student, yeah, the student protests. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, like um, I think mostly in France, but like also around other France, places. France in and Italy, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and at this time, it wasn't as successful as one would have hoped. So, but at this time, it was still like all sort of you know the sky's the limit kind of thing. This film has a more lighthearted tone. It's not the it's not the downer like the Great Silence. <laughs> right, <is>. right, yeah. <laughs> no, I kept waiting for like the really dark ending, you know, and it, I think it fakes us out a couple of times, uh, you know, with, mm. with what's going to end up happening. But, uh, you know, you're right. That, I mean, 68, I mean, obviously this is also the year of like Night of the Living Dead. I mean, this, yeah. you know, there's a there's this revolution that's just in the air. And I think that there is, you know, this film is very much kind of of that time. And I feel like 
we have to kind of understand it as both kind of looking back to this kind of revolutionary period and kind of recognizing the sort of revolutionary fervor that's kind of going on in the in the culture at the time. Certainly an audience kind of seeing it at the time would have kind of been on board with that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah. there's no there's no doubt that, you know, it would have at least, you know, it would have been like, oh, why do they insert the politics into our like spaghetti westerns? Come on. Bunch of SJWs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this film, like I said, its initial writing for the script and everything was much more political and social. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So Corbucci here realizes we got to make this entertaining. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we got to. <laughs> we don't want the audience to slit their wrists at the end. That's the, yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. So instead of, you know, in, instead of getting like the Battle of Algiers, which is just really depressing, like a great movie, but depressing as fuck. Instead, you, you know, you start off with this sort of present day thing with Franco Nero giving us a voiceover and ruminating about, OK, we're going to get into a flashback of when I first met Paco and, and, yeah. and what's going on. But I, I love how it starts <laughs> off where the saddest looking dwarves in clown makeup <laughs> come out right. of the fucking doorway. <laughs> And it's like, whoa, okay. Uh, I love how like sad and weird and real all of, all of it looks. I mean, mm-hmm. it is it is kind of one of those things where you know you you really could you know, like. I mean, today like we expect our production values to be so good that like it just it can't look like this anymore. Yeah. But you know, then they you know at that point they could basically just kind of put on a little circus and like yeah, it looks kind of like a circus probably did look in around nineteen twenty and yeah you know right along the border of mexico and the u.s and you know it's just that's just sort of the thing that it was like you know <laughs> nero's performance in this is fucking great uh i love how um he's just walking around striking matches like his little gimmick as <laughs> he, strikes... One he strikes matches on a woman's cleavage like, yeah you know? <laughs> it's it's the great yeah they're at this like whorehouse and, yeah, yeah, and, he's, yeah. and he strikes a match off like, her how can you possibly get that much friction what does that say about the level of sun damage that's been done to this poor woman's tits you know it's, well it's, uh... the the woman looks surprised too she's like looking at the other prostitutes like what the fuck like how did that happen yeah. he's getting, he, like he's magic magic matches apparently you know yeah like he strikes a like that's sort of the uh the the sort of uh, surreal <clears throat> nature of like these spaghetti westerns where you know some stuff just is kind of almost supernatural yeah, like yeah. at one point he strikes a match off a guy's teeth you know yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it's like it's like where the heroes can you know like are so good with the gun that they can like kill four people while the other you know and without even like blinking you know and of course that's completely unrealistic yeah level of, you know, this is just that but with a match and it does kind of put us in this kind of hyper realized world that then sort of makes some of the some of the more uh, kind of trenchant observations about human nature in the film uh, just that much more uh, interesting. I mean, it would be a little bit like, again, in a kind of a modern day context, it would be like kind of sitting down to kind of like a smaller budget superhero movie and suddenly being like, this is really about the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, although Franco here, he's not... He's not necessarily portrayed as this super skilled gunfighter either. Like he, he's no. much more a schemer. He's a very thinking man's kind of like gunfighter. He's he's manipulating people. And he's I mean, more he, he's more just kind of knowledgeable. He's more just mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, I'm the guy who can like put together the machine guns and then show you it and then like fire it off. And there's not there's not a sense of yeah, I mean, he does have a couple of sequences where he's just shown as being really good with the gun. I'm thinking more about the scene in Django where he like pulls out the gun yeah. for the first time, and you know, like suddenly he's getting into fist fights and all that kind of stuff, and he's this kind of supernaturally competent, you know, yeah. gunfighter. Which a lot of a lot of a lot of these films just kind of 
display that. That just sort of goes with the territory with these kind yeah. of movies. But he's only really shown as being like super great with a gun when early on in the film, where he decides, okay, well, I'm going to hire my services <laughs> out to these pseudo revolutionaries because the the silver miners who initially hired me are all dead. So, <laughs> right. I, so I might as well find some new bosses, you know. And he and he gets behind <laughs> the fucking machine gun that he bought and. And so he starts shooting the fucking machine gun around and wiping out uh, these sort of government troops. Yeah. Uh, they're they're backed by imperialist powers. He represents to some degree imperialist powers as well. Yeah, no. And then he's being hired out by the revolutionaries, which is kind of a thing that went on during the Mexican Revolution. Sure, both yeah. both sides were being played together in a proxy war by imperialist powers, very much like uh, Venezuela is today, you know, like yeah. very much. I was, I was thinking you could imagine, um, a re- sorry, I was going to, I thought about us doing like a remake this with this film, but uh, uh, you know, like I had a, uh, I had a vision of doing this set in like kind of modern day Afghanistan where, yeah. you know, you've got like a U.S. occupation and you've got, you know, kind of the, the villagers who are being strafed with, with bombs and you got, you know, like this kind of mercenary, the, this Blackwater guy or whatever who shows up and is, you know, hired by one of the villages to uh, help him fight, you know, off mm-hmm. the U.S. And, you know, they're, I mean, the, the basic situation is, uh, I don't want to say universal, but it's certainly much, you know, it's not really said in Mexico in 1917 or whatever, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, a lot more complicated, a lot more uh, nuanced of that. Yeah, but uh, so that's where you get your sort of political readings and stuff in this, where it's very broad strokes, but Cabrucci's still trying to make the points here. And and Curly is just, he comes off as like a really, the darker side of the mercenary attitude, where it's he's just like, he's looking to fuck everybody over. Like, he doesn't care who's paying him. He doesn't want anyone paying him, really. He just wants to take everybody's money and (laughs) and fucking go. Uh, (laughs) Repeat repeat customers are not a big concern for him, mm, you know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but also I, like he kind of makes it personal like he's after these two guys like they they kind of like damage his professional reputation mm-hmm. and he's like well fuck this you know yeah because uh, he and uh kowalski know each other from yeah. like you know they're both professionals in the business so you, you like, kind of get you kind of get their competitors and there there's a little bit of like professional pride going on you know and then when he gets stripped naked and you know kind of sent on his way you know it's kind of like all right don't worry well, yeah i'm well, back yeah when they when they they, they fucking railroad him and, and kill his men and decide, you know, Kowalski decides, well, we'll spare him. And it's like, you know, leave him his shirt at least, his long shirt, so at least he's covering his naughty bits and he can walk off with some dignity. And then fucking Curly's like, fuck you. And he takes his shirt off and is like, and walks away just bare ass naked. He's like, fuck you. I'm, I'm not going to take your pity or your, you know, right. your, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking walk, walk to town naked and fucking uh, come back and find you. Kind right. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's a, you know, great ass shot there. One of the great ass shots in. Uh, I gotta say, Jack Pellis- great, a couple of great ass shots in this film. Actually, yeah. now that you know. Yeah, because, they, uh, they, and one of them describing uh, Boulevard, the Boulevard's theory. You know, it's like, oh yeah, there's the head, and then there's the ass, and they're connected <laughs> by the back, and uh, yeah. You know, that was a, that was a bit of a like, oh hello, <laughs> this was yeah. unexpected, and yet uh, welcome and kind of a creepy way but uh yeah <laughs> i like that at least in this film like the next film we're going to be t- tackling Companeros is 
kind of a remake of this film in a way mm. but in this film Nero never really <clears throat> quite becomes a revolutionary like he's, mm. he's still obviously separate from Paco but he's still he becomes a friend you know like he the professional thing goes by the wayside by the end of it where you know, they, they learn to respect each other to some degree, you know. Right. Well, there's, give... a, there's a sort of, uh, because uh, I think Nero or uh, Polak still wants to sort of be in it for the for the money, but also mm-hmm. saying like, okay, well, we can work together as more as equals. You know, Paco is like, well, no, I, you know, I, I believe in this, this thing and I, and it's bigger than like my desire for money. And they, they do respect each other, but they're still kind of going off in, in different directions. But uh, yeah, there is, a, they, they've each sort of learned something from the other. I mean, it is, there is a kind of buddy I mean, again, a buddy comedy kind of aspect to this. A little, a little and, bit, and, you know. and that's where Columba's big role in this. In, she has, in, in, she has in a lot, two very big roles in this. this well, movie. that too, but... No, in, she's, in, she's amazing. I, I, I actually... She becomes the heart of the film in a way. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because she's the one who from the beginning knows that Polak's just in it for the money. Right. And and she doesn't like seeing like she she's like, OK, there might be something with Paco here. Like there's there there might be something we can do with him. And she's kind of the brains behind the whole thing. She's like the heart yeah. and soul behind the revolution. She's she steers Paco into actually becoming the man that he only has sort of vague illusions of becoming. Right. She, she actually steers him to actually becoming the legit revolutionary who cares about his country and the cause. Right. And she's constantly trying to downplay and and railroad uh, the Polak's involvement in everything. Like <laughs> she's she's always you know looking down on him. You can't trust this motherfucker. You know, well, like, it's funny how they like rely on how this becomes kind of a triumvirate of sorts because uh-huh. they rely on Polak for tactics. They rely on uh, really Columba for strategy. You know, uh-huh. I mean, you, you kind of get the sense that she's more the the one kind of doing the big picture scheming. You know, or the sort of the yeah. The, the idea person um although unfortunately you see you don't see a whole lot of that in the film it's kind of uh, more yeah. applied and paco is sort of the uh sort of the the energy he's sort of the, mm-hmm. the person providing the the sort of the spirit that revolutionary zeal that kind of like the person that the that the revolution can rally behind and so there is a sense in which the three of these people are, are they all need each other and i mean it is ultimately i mean you know let's just be honest i mean it's polak who is uh clearly necessary for this project but it's him grifting off of the rest of them it's, yeah. i mean he's literally absorbing the entire resources from this mm-hmm. you know oh he's i mean just, he... he's just pulling like literally they're just robbing these towns and then giving it directly to Polak as payment for kind of making this happen it's like oh it's a revolution it's great we're all going to share everything and then like no because Polak's taking everything literally i mean two hundred dollars <laughs> a day plus expenses that's a that's, lot of money that's this is 1917, or so it's pre 1920. I don't know. We don't really it's get like 1910 ish or something like that. Yeah, but... I mean, I, I get the sense it's post. Uh, you know, it's kind of somewhere in World War One or something. Well, it's like 1900s that. because well, it's not World War One. It's it's before that. Although there's an anachronism in this where you see like a a, a biplane dropping bombs, which was not <laughs> something that happened until like at the end of World War One. Yeah, I mean the Mexican Revolution is like nineteen ten to nineteen twenty, and I was kind of yeah. imagining we're towards the end of that. But mm. I mean it may be kind of earlier on. So I mean I'm not I am no expert on the on the Mexican Revolution. I mean the, so, we, we do see you, you do see modern conveniences. It's obviously post nineteen hundred because yeah. you got cars, you've got like uh you know gramophones and shit like that, you know, yeah, that yeah, would just probably wouldn't be available like they they were around, but they probably wouldn't be available in Mexico before you know imperialist powers walked in there and 
started setting up shop. Yeah, which you know, oh uh, yeah, complex history. I mean, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to kind of place this at a particular like you know moment. I mean, this isn't really about real history. It's about yeah. this sort of Hollywood reimagining of the real, or not even Hollywood, but you know, spaghetti wood. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, reimagining of that real history. But again, kind of like. I, there, there is a there is a there is a kind of like a a um, critique of you know both an appreciation for the need for revolution but also a critique of sort of the process by which that happens mm-hmm. like the messiness of like well we had to hire a guy to kind of come in and do some of the dirty work for us uh, because we didn't have the expertise and the the problems that kind of come along with that uh, but also um, the thing kind of goes to uh, Paco's head and he starts to you know kind of do some really awful stuff the second yeah. he's given any kind of degree of power I mean no one comes out of this film I mean you know some of these characters uh, end up covered in literal pig shit and others are yeah. the, the figurative kind you know yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I think you, Columba is the one that is really the only one that really kind of comes across as like uh, kind of on the right side of history here. You yeah, know? but uh, she really, she really but is. She's she's allied with these two dirt bags, so you know. Yeah, they're <laughs> you know? they're more for her. They're more necessary evils than anything yeah. else. But although I I guess she legit falls in love with Paco by the yeah. end of it, you know. So. I, I I just want to see I want to see the threesome. That's what I, I yeah. So, you, know, you, you kind of figure know. like it, it was yeah. bound to happen. I, I'm imagining right? this is a poly triad. That's 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 my you know. <laughs> that's your head cannon for it. That's Dad. my head cannon, you know. And a triad, not a V. I imagine that, you know, when uh when Columba's uh fe- not feeling well, you know, these two I could see them kind of going at it. They they're clearly very comfortable with one another. Yeah, they are like the, you know, back and forth, and, and it's very much a a very uh, close sort of like almost brother relationship where at some mm-hmm. points they're at their throat at each other's throat, and other points they're like totally cool with each other, and they're just yeah. you know like yeah, you know, I'm just gonna say a lot of men uh, left the trenches of World War One with uh, having had feelings they didn't quite know how to process in 1918, you know, right. you know. War, war does war does amazing things for people, you know, going through those kind of experiences. And yeah. if you're trying to say I'm gonna start writing slash fic of these two characters, <laughs> I'm absolutely gonna be on it. I'm gonna be on AO3 tonight, like you know, typing away. <laughs> Not really. But. Yeah, I do like some of the set pieces and like just the way this is shot. A lot of this stuff looks better than anything Leone has shot, as far as I'm oh, yeah. concerned. In no, no, there's... Like the um, <clears throat> man. I think it's just the fact that this is a spaghetti western where not all the beautiful shots are in stark daylight. Like yeah. you, you have that night shot with the rainstorm where they're mm-hmm. coming up to that like old burnout ruins with like the Jesus on the cross thing, and mm. like man, that looks so good. Like it, it does. I mean, I think we're we both own the Blu-ray for this now. So uh, yeah, no, some of the some of the photography on this is absolutely gorgeous. Um, I'm thinking about some of the. I mean. It's going to sound weird to say this, but some of the like dusk photography, like the outdoor mm-hmm. dusk photography, the sky looks so amazing that I swear it was a matte painting. Except yeah. it's not, you know. Yeah, it's like, not. And, yeah. and and I mean that in the in the best possible way. Like it looks like a painting, but it's actually just actually what the sky looks like, yeah. you know. Um, but but it's that evocative and it's that. Um, I mean, it is. There's a stylized. It's funny to say, like, there's a stylized quality to the way the sky just naturally looked. But there's a real purposeful uh, kind of art direction. There's a real purposeful kind of uh, vision behind this, and that it, it really does kind of come across as um, it's really effectively shot. It's a gorgeous film, and uh, you know, 
a lot of the kind of you know a lot of even the great like spaghetti westerns i mean a lot of them just kind of look kind of low budget and and mm-hmm. you know like even when they're uh gloriously shot you don't get you know they're not pleasing to the eye necessarily this is this is incredibly pleasing to the eye in uh, almost every uh shot so i love the setups that he does in this too like initially where <clears throat> polak comes into the mining camp mm-hmm. and at first he doesn't see paco's revolutionaries have attacked the mining camp and they've hung everybody in it. Right. And initially he doesn't see the first couple people hung, which are actually down in the well. They're they're right. hung down in the well. And the, there's a shot looking down at that and he's walking by it unaware. And then he comes up and then all of a sudden he starts seeing all these fucking bodies hung everywhere. And you have shots panning up at bodies, looking up at them from the floor. Yeah. Um, and then you have like these, really great set pieces basically following the revolutionaries at their, you know, their different attacks and stuff they do. Uh, the one at the day of the dead festival where, where Columbus wearing the Jesus, she's as Jesus and she's wearing the beard. Oh God. Yeah. That's such a surreal moment. Yeah. Like, that's such a, like, there's a lot of like, I mean, you know, I'm kind of like a buddy comedy cop movie or whatever, but those kind of sequences were like, suddenly like everybody's in a big costume and there's a bunch yeah. of like purple robes and, you know, we built a little float all to like basically just pull out our machine guns and just blow everybody away. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I mean, it does, you know, there, there, there is like some symbolism there, you know, like where bearded lady Jesus comes and yeah. is like kicking ass. But uh, also just, it's, it's like weird imagery. I mean, it does, it does, it is sort of borrowing from some of the, uh, again, that kind of sixties counterculture revolutionary spirit. I mean, there, there is some of that in here, even in this, uh, almost kind of like hidden beneath the surface of what, you know, just looking at the, at the DVD cover, looking at the movie poster, whatever you think. Oh yeah. Like, uh, you know, kind of standard spaghetti Western. No, this is, there's a lot more going on here. You know, even, even just kind of weird little moments like that. Yeah. I love Curly's death in this. You get the, uh, you get the sort of penultimate confrontation, I guess is what I, I I had seen that, um, because, you know, if you go and like look for spaghetti Western music on YouTube, you know, this scene kind of pops up. Yeah. I've seen that scene a number of times and, you know, in another, in many, I assumed that was the finale. But mm-hmm. but no, there's another like ten fifteen minutes of movie after the end of that. Yeah, that's just a little. That's just a little story. That's yeah. just Curly that's looking. Just, for that's just revenge. that's just. I mean, Curly. I mean, you know, Jack Palance probably. I don't know. Probably the biggest star in the movie. And you know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I'm not probably. Depending on, depending on how you want to, uh, you know, I don't know, sixty eight. Depending on. The context, I'm sure he whatever, pulled but, more money in Hollywood than Nero did. Um, in, yeah, yeah. You know, you're sure. I mean, may, I'm sure in like Italy, maybe Nero was a was a bigger star, but uh, yeah, Palance was the kind of the big American actor in this and. Um, he's not in that much of the film, and, nope. and he's, there is a bit of a Henry Fonda in uh, What's the Time in the West kind of right. quality of kind of coming in. I mean, he's not that cold blooded, and this isn't like that level of epic. But uh, and there is a little bit of like you know, show up, be the bad guy. He's he's kind of like Alan Rickman in Die Hard. You know, he's like that kind of you know, like kind of big movie villain. In this, well, you know? y- yeah, because <clears throat> when you watch him earlier in the film. He's always walking away from the violence that he instigates. Oh yeah, no, like he just he just kind of gives the nod. I mean, I love the there's this like one shot kind of at the towards the beginning. He has the conversation with the guy, and you see in the background a guy like sharpening a uh, a pitchfork, yeah. and then, you know you just kind of the camera just follows him, and he just kind of goes, he just kind of nods. He gets on a horse and he rides by, and then dead body slumped over with the pitchfork and, in him and, and it's like yeah that's a yeah i mean that's a, that's a and it does it again like in a, in a stream i think you know, when he confront yes when he confronts the two owners of the mine who initially hire the polack to guard the silver shipments 
mm-hmm. he, he railroads them, you know, cuts them off and says, okay, are you guys the uh, guys we need? It's like, well, yeah, I'm the owner of the mine. Here's my brother. Well, we don't need him. And so immediately he just nods to his men, kill this guy. And then we got yeah. this guy left. And then he's like, so tell me what you know. Why did you hire the Polak? Well, and the guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he's like, hey, uh, Sebastian or Studs or whoever his fucking guy is, you know, kick the shit out of this guy. And while he's walking in to do that, the camera follows Curly doing a circle on his horse. And yep. then he comes back to the guy bleeding now, having his face kicked in. And it's just yeah, like... There, there, there's quite a bit of like the, the worst of the violence kind of happens off screen. Yeah. And it's uh, it's vocative. It, you know, you, you get to sort of imagine the thing that's actually happening. I mean, something that kind of happens in Battle of Algiers a little bit with like the torture sequences, you know. Right. Um, which is yeah. a different, very different kind of film. But, you know, you, you sort of get the sense of... Um, some of the brutality. I mean, even the film is leaning away from some of that, from from showing the details on that, which I think again feels very modern in a lot of ways. Of like, no, we don't. You know, it's it's better that you not see this directly. Also, uh, in the film Django, the uh, the sequence where the uh, owners of the uh, like the the overseers are having fun with the they're they're letting them escape and then shooting them as they run away, like that mm-hmm. sequence. I was kind of reminded of of that kind of level of just casual brutality. I mean, this, this is a little bit more focused because it's kind of like more straight up kind of bad guy violence towards, you know, people who have information or whatever. Um, whereas that's just more like casual cruelty, yeah. but um, you can definitely see like Corbucci style is, is right there in both of those sequences. Yeah. And I find, you know, in the final <clears throat> sequence of Curly where you sort of get the impression that he's at his most dangerous when he's got people to do his dirty work for him. Yep. And then when he's finally confronted with the odds evened by Franco Nero's character, and he's got to have the shootout with Roman, you can, you can sort of tell like where he's got his back turned to him, and and they're both waiting for the for uh, the Polak to ding the final ding on the cowbell. He's kind of nervous, like he's oh, he's, and he makes it torturous too. Mm-hmm. Like Nero is literally sitting. You can just see him. He's he he, he he's enjoying he's it. Doing. He's, yeah, he's enjoying he's the process, with him. you know. He's fucking yeah. with. He doesn't like either of these guys yeah. at this point, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, he definitely prefers one to the other, and you, you kind of get the sense he's watching. And maybe he gave Ramona a little bit of a uh, an edge just by like hitting the bell at just the right moment. But uh, no, that's a it's a really effective scene. I, I really, uh, I really appreciate the. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's so well executed as a. It's not quite the Mexican standoff kind of thing, but it it, it kind of serves that same kind of like dramatic purpose and uh but then again there's another 10 minutes of movie where um yeah. you know no this is the end we're not going to kind of dust ourselves off and ride off into the sunset like no 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 we've got um i'm, I'm going to take you into the fed to the to the authorities now you know and and then well, well that turns out not so great but then um turns out uh columba kind of saves the day in the end yeah and then near decides well you know what i'll just spare this motherfucker and, and let him go off and and, and keep his revolution going and I'll go my way, you know, like at that point, you know, the mutual respect thing comes into play, but should mention though, in the curly scene. So not only do you get one of the most famous pieces of music that Quentin Tarantino ripped off for his films, you get the shot to the flower uh, in the mm-hmm. breast pocket that you get from Django and chain of Leonardo DiCaprio. Same idea, yep. you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the surprise death where it's like, <clears throat> Oh shit! And all of a sudden, blood starts pumping out of the flower. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's no good it's, stuff. It's it's Tarantino saw this movie a time or two. I you can, mm-hmm. you can be you can be you can be certain. You know, I I think it's not quite as effective, but it's pretty much nearly on par with uh, Henry Fonda's death in Once Upon a Time in the West. Same kind of. No, yeah, the, no. The realization on Curly's face at the end that oh shit, 
I've been shot. <laughs> well, it's a different, it's a different kind of film and a different kind of moment, you know, where yeah. time in the West is like the epic where, you know, we're literally going to spend like eight minutes watching these two people like circle each other. And, yeah. you know, Leone like makes a meal out of these sequences. Whereas Kerbucci, he's, he's not, you know, he could have done that, but he's not interested in, in prolonging it in that way. He's not interested in drawing out the drama. I mean, the point isn't the gunfight. The point is the sort of the character relations and the point yeah. is the sort of the, the deeper meaning of kind of what's, what's going on here. And um, no, it's a great sequence. It doesn't, it, it is not as, as epic quote unquote and you know, capital E, but it, I think it, it, it uh, no, it's great stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, <clears throat> to, to... can I say, I love the, I love the big fake out at the end where Paco is, is, uh, is, you know, riding off into the sunset. No, a, brilliant Morricone score like mm-hmm. absolutely astounding Morricone score throughout the whole thing and then suddenly you know we get happy western music like yeah. you know like very kind of traditional 50s western music in a way like as we're kind of getting like Paco kind of doing the like oh we won and you know you can almost kind of hear like Gene Autry in the background going like <laughs> and Paco rode off into the sun you know like you can kind of get a little bit of that which I mean it's still great music it's it's very like catchy but it's definitely that more like kind of more traditionalist kind of thing Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, you get over the rise, and then you have four guys with uh, rifles just about to like take out Paco, and it's like, oh, it's the end of the Great Silence all over again. Spoilers yeah, for the Great Silence if you haven't seen that. But you know, uh, that ends on a real down note, and uh, you're not yeah. necessarily expecting it until the last like three minutes or so. You are more so than in this film, but I mean, I, I was really thinking, oh, we're gonna go there. He's just gonna, they're just gonna blow him away. But no, we get the nice Hollywood ending, and then we get the the end of the more Morricone. So you know, there there is a I mean, it really is playing with genre in some in some interesting ways, um, and, and you know, and again, very kind of a postmodern, very twenty first century kind of stuff. Spaghetti westerns sometimes get to think a little bit of a bad rap for being um, just kind of like you know, <laughs> kind of generic. You know, I think people who haven't watched a lot of them or people just haven't really like, paid attention to them just kind of go, oh yeah, it's a bunch of guys like shooting. It's a bunch of guys, you know, people getting shot in the gut and like going, and then mm. like that's you know that's that's kind of the old Patton Oswalt line. I'm yeah. a Patton Oswalt's a big fan of these films, but you know he sort of like gets the like generic kind of quality of some of it. Yeah, um, I think paying attention to kind of what's going kind of going on with you know the way an audience would have seen it at the time and the way some of the music cues work, I think you definitely get a sense of you know that the, they are. This is kind of deeply playful in a way. I mean, this does kind of draw from uh, kind of what's going on in cutting edge like French New Wave and cutting edge like Italian cinema of the time. You know, it's just kind of repurposed in this in this kind of like kind of commercial vein. Um, and in that sense, it, it works a lot of the same way that I mean, a lot of the same way that the kind of the modern blockbusters work, where they're kind of taking that like, you know, 90s indie, um, you know, kind of we're going to do pop culture, heavy dialogue, heavy sequences. <laughs> but then we're going to make it about like, uh, you know, space aliens and stuff. And it's, gonna yeah. be, you know, we're going to kind of do both of those things. And so, yeah, no, I, I think the film, I think it's a remarkable film. It's definitely on my top 10 of the year, no question. So. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, I would say it, it's not Corbucci's best film, but it's definitely near the top, like top five for me. Yeah. And I think it's every, every bit like the equal of the best uh, Leone stuff, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. The, like this and like The Great Silence are like kind of the ones that show that Corbucci was just as good as Leone as far as providing, a, you know, the sort of complete package as far as the yeah. genre went. Yeah, so. I mean, he's doing a different thing, but it's in, but it's not lesser. It's just a different thing. You yeah. Know? And it's a thing that's a little bit harder to to see the, the genius of, to sit somebody cold down to this who hadn't ever seen a spaghetti western and go, no, this is, 
look at look at what he's doing here. But um, I think yeah, no, it's 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 great stuff and um, definitely worth seeing. Also, uh, apparently uh, Giovanni Rally uh, showed up and uh, she was directed by Corbucci in the seventies and <laughs> some kind of Italian sex comedy. And I'm yeah. like, well, we should put that on the list for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> more Giovanni Rally, and I'm definitely on board with that. Uh, and in particular, if she's going to come back for with Corbucci, that sounds like a good plan because. There really is. I mean, again, I really want to pair this with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because it feels like very kind of out of the same uh, kind of thing because that film is also, I don't know if you've seen that film recently. Yeah, I've seen it at all. Okay. And that film is also kind of like, you know, kind of mismatched pair of gunfighters kind of going off and having adventures and they kind of get involved in some revolutionary activity. And then there's a girl and there's kind of a love triangle, but not really. And, you know, it's just, so, I mean, it just so much of this just kind of like, you know, seemed uh kind of on par with that but ultimately i mean this is this is clearly the better film I th- although i really do like butch cassidy and the sundance kid as well um so you know. yeah so uh giovanna rally we got another podcast girlfriend i think yeah that well you know it's it's all these uh busty italian girls that's, yeah uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> i think we have a type yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, gee who would have thought <laughs> yeah so a little bit of trivia here. Uh, during filming, the crew caught sight of what appeared to be a UFO. They filmed it and sent photos to NASA and were impressed with the findings, but nothing further came of it from their discovery. So, hey, I guess NASA was like, Area 51, we'll keep the photos there and not tell anybody. That's probably That's what they it did. Is. Yeah, well, yeah. You know. It turned out the real Area 51 was in Italy the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> no, That's actually, a... it was in Spain where they filmed all these right. things. <laughs> yeah. No, Area 51, the one in Nevada, not the real Area 51. The real UFO stuff is all... The stuff in Nevada is all fakes. The real UFOs are landing in Spain. That's that's the... I bet you Randy Quaid could confirm this for us. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because he was contractually obligated to provide his voice for the English version, Franco Nero was initially cast as Paco Roman, <clears throat> and James Coburn was hired for the role of the mercenary, who was originally supposed to be an American. Uh, but they just... I guess Coburn dropped out of it uh, due to some disagreements as to whether Nero would be top billed or not. Um, oh, so, well, you know. Yeah. So uh, uh, Coburn's role was rewritten and as Polish, so Nero could portray a character of an accent. Uh, <laughs> Although he in no sense sounds Polish. At no, all. not really. <laughs> I always thought like Polak was really kind of the like it, like it's a joke on him or something. Like it's really... Like he's so dumb, he might as well be Polish. Might as well because, be Polish you know, or something, yeah. you know. Like I kind of, I kind of got the uh, the sense that it, you know, it's not. Re- he's not really Polish. They just kind of call him that or something. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. a weird thing. Um, no, I'm kind of now imagining like that there that there's like an Italian language version with Franco, like that's this version, and then there's an English language version with. Uh, Franco Nero playing the Paco character and James Coburn, and I really wish the two versions both existed. So that would be cool. It would be, yeah. Jack Pounce, of course, plays a character named Curly. Pounce would later win an Oscar for City Slickers in 1991, where he also played a character named Curly. So there you go. And I'm now thinking that was probably deliberate, right? You know, uh, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been. Uh, you know, someone I don't know who directed that film. <clears throat> Can't remember, but uh, maybe they, you know, sort of pulled from from Jack's uh, past in his, in his film career. I mean, that film was made in 1991. So you got to think that's a, uh, it's directed by Ron Underwood. I mean, he would have grown up on Westerns. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> First film was future world. Oh, the yeah, sequel Capricorn to Westworld. One. 
Capricorn one. Yeah, so he he would have grown up on this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, he, you got to imagine that he's in, you know, born in 1953. So who would have been like 15 when this film was released. So, you know, this I mean, he, right I mean, he must've, he must've cast Pal, uh, Palance, to, you know, due to like shit, like Shane and stuff like this. Yeah. Yeah, like, I know. Like, yeah. So box office for this was 1.1 billion lira. So <clears> sure. Pretty good. No yeah. matter where. That, that's, that's a, that's Avengers money. Really? That's, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Lira, not dollars. Okay. There's a little bit of, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of disparity, but not yeah. much, really, not when much, you think no. about it. It's a successful film. So yeah. I'm imagining they made like five sequels. No, you know? not at all. There's an expanded universe of this. Yeah, where? Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah no, that's that's, that's so a mod, that's a modern thing. Oh, um, yeah. uh, DVD info for this: Kino Lorber is your best way. DVD, Blu-ray, 2017. Uh, that's the way to go with this one. So I, I after the problems sourcing the film last weekend, which I'm now I was informed it was on YouTube, and I completely missed that. I bought the Blu-ray. It looks gorgeous. Uh, buy it. It's it's worth the it's worth the cash. It, it yeah, really is. this is one to own in your collection if you like yeah. you know, spaghetti westerns. I mean, if you don't have it, then you're doing yourself a disservice, really, kind of. Uh, but yeah, uh, next week we're going to be, or at least next episode, uh, whenever that happens, whenever, whenever we can bother to, to get together again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, work gonna... work work gets in the way. It's kind of the ultimate problem. It turns out that being a an adult with responsibilities and trying to do a podcast or two, uh, kind of challenge. I gotta pay for all the soup I eat. Like this, yeah. <laughs> and the audience has no idea why that joke is funny. Yeah, it's, well, uh, it's all right. Um, but uh, next time we're gonna be looking at some more Sergio Cabucci and some more yeah. Franco Nero and Jack Palance. We're gonna yeah. be looking at Campaneros. and not G- Giovanni Raleigh. I'm no, I'm dis- unfortunately, I'm disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, still. Uh, an- interesting film and we'll be getting to that and until then daniel tell people where they can find you on the interwebs oh you can find me on twitter i'm at daniel lee harper uh the main other thing i'm doing right now other than the cape shit podcast where we're going through all the marvel movies Mm -hmm. uh that's on the same feed as this one and the main difference is that uh we talk about uh modern stuff that makes money and uh, (laughs) i take first chair on that uh, you can check that out. Just keep listening to the other stuff on this feed, and you'll get another episode eventually. I think they all know because I was looking at our downloads, and they're pretty much equal on that to our yeah. regular stuff. So I, I like to think it's a completely different set of people. Like nobody actually subscribes. People go download individually <laughs> episodes, and then but it's a completely different set of people who are, <laughs> but at the same number, you know. So that's that's my that's my you know that's my vision. No, I, it's. Clearly, people are subscribed, and they're like, you know, uh, they're they're all like seeing this thing come up, and then just going delete. That's probably what. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you can check that out. Uh, I also do a podcast about uh, terrible people who do not do revolutions and do terrible things, but uh, overt twenty uh, first century neo Nazis. Uh, that's it. I don't speak German. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes where you can go find that if you don't already know that. And <laughs> ironically, this is now the, the tale that's whacking the dog because that podcast has way more listeners than this one does. Yeah. But this one, uh, much more fun. So, uh, yeah, but if you want to hear what I've been working on for the last couple of years that uh, drives uh, spirals of depressive despair and everyone who listens, uh, go check that podcast out. We just did a two-part series about Holocaust denial, just in case you are curious about how dark that that show can get anyway yeah
Happy fun time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can find yeah, it at... We're going to talk about Holocaust now with jokes. That's yeah. the, you know... And uh, you can find a lot less Holocaust denial if you go over to tmbdos.podbean.com. Not you can find no it. Holocaust denial, but yeah, less. <laughs> uh, very, very, very much less. Yeah. Um, at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our uh, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links, and you join our Facebook group. That way, you can interact with us, and we'll get back to you, which we often do. Yeah, so. we we read all the comments on the podcast at this point, so you know. I don't, I don't even have to go look at it. I just, you know, I just wait for Lee to tell me that people said something interesting. And I'm like, oh, that does sound interesting. That sounds like a good group I should maybe be in. But I'm not because, I mean, I am. I'm in it. But I just don't really use Facebook anymore. So, you know, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but until next time, uh, thank you, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you when we see you. Goodbye. Cheers.
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>